Okay, so last week we looked, I don't know if you can remember last week, seven sleeps since last week, but it was, um, we looked at the story as Luke told it, and I looked at it from the perspective of 24, News 24, News 24, have you seen that? Just the speed at which the story was happening, and we sort of looked at it in a kind of detective kind of way. That was kind of our approach. We're not going to be as detective-like this week. We sort of took each, each item, the, the tearing of the, the curtain in the temple, and sort of tried to dissect it. And understand it. We're not going to be detective like we are going to be reflective like. Do you like that? Not detective, but reflective. And I think that often comes with the kind of story that we're looking at. It's a walk. That's what's happening in this story. It's a walk. It's the it's the walk to Emmaus. And I don't know how your chat is when you're walking. If it's different to how it is when like when you meet people at church, you kind of rush into everything, don't you? Sort of sort of do all the chat, you think, oh, I need to speak to him about this, and then you do the chat really quick, you've got five minutes, you're like both chelp at each other. When you go on a walk, when you're out in the dales, you've got like two hours to get up and down the hill, you sort of slowly cover the ground, don't you? And it's all right that there's 10 minutes of silence, and it's all right that you didn't quite finish the thing because you can be more reflective, and that, that's kind of just to help us get into the scene of what we're looking at, the story of the road to Emmaus. It's this, it's this long walk, and I think that Luke is kind of quite quite gentle with how he writes this. I don't, I don't think he reveals too much of any agenda when he writes, like verse 13, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. I think Luke, that when, when I read this and I see the drama that's going on in Jerusalem and I see, and I see the trouble and I see, I see the sweat and the tears that it must have been to be a disciple, I see this as kind of you know, fleeing. This is running away. This is getting a break. This is going for a day away just to get your head together. It's a bit like, um, because their, their, their world has just come tumbling down. I mean, watch The X Factor. Did you watch The X Factor at all? You dare not dare you. You're like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to admit it even if, even if I do. But that, but that week where they're at, where they're at the, um, the homes of the judges, Judges House Week, have you seen, have you seen this? And and they just look like they look, you see them when they come in in their first audition and they're wearing like, they're like, they're like this. And then when they get to the audition, they've had their teeth whitened and they've just, they just look immaculate. They've had this amazing makeover and they're on this amazing journey. And then, and then Simon Cowell from his, from his like beach hut in Miami or something breaks it to him and he says, your journey's over. You're going back to Mablethorpe to work in Iceland part-time and reset your GCSEs, and, and this is kind of like this crushing blow, and, and they go, well, I'm on a journey. I've, I've, I've spent the last three or four months heading in this direction. I've, you know, I'm, I'm heading on a journey. I'm off to superstardom, and, and their world comes, and that's, in a sadistic way, that's my favorite part of the show, when they've got to, when they've got to kind of go home, and, it, and, that's, and that's kind of what's happening to these disciples. They've been on this three-year story with Jesus, this amazing story with Jesus. Jesus just blowing them away with miracles, just wandering into fields and beginning to preach and thousands of people coming to hear his ministry. And then he is crucified and he is gone and their world comes crushing down and their journey stops. And this walk is a, well, what on earth do we do now then kind of walk? Do you ever have a walk that's like that? What do I do with my life now. And then Jesus comes along. And I think, and you can speak to me afterwards if you want to, but I think this is funny. I think this is, I think this is actually hilarious. Jesus comes along. Now, now think, about, think about my mini rant last week about what Easter is and how significant Easter is 
and how Jesus is fundamental to it and crucial to it. Think about, think about what Jesus has just gone through on the cross. Think about what the disciples have just seen. Just think about what it means, the magnitude of the cross. Remember I said the whole wo- this makes sense of the whole world. These two disciples are walking along, and Jesus comes up behind them. What does he say? This is brilliant. This is, I, think Jesus, I think this is hilarious, without being irreverent. I think it's just incredible. He says, what are we talking about? Brilliant, isn't it? What, what are we talking about? And the disciples turn around and they're like, what, what else is there to talk about? There's nothing else. To t- you know, have, were you born on the sun? Have you been on holiday forever? Where have you been? There's just one thing to talk about. There's only one thing happening right now. And Jesus says, what? Brilliant. I think it feels like it's quite playful. He's like, what things? What things are happening? And then, and then we, kind of, we kind of find out where their heads are at. About Jesus of Nazareth. So I'll read it out. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and their rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And here we go. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What does that say about where their heads are at? We had hoped he was we had hoped that we had hoped the prophet would look like this. We had hoped that he would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. These people are like, well, what is what is going on? And there's this kind of story that Bruce, they, they, they think he's the prophet. They're expecting a prophet. But this can't be the prophet, right? Because he's not here. He's dead. I just want us to pause over this picture for a second. I've, I, don't, I don't have favorite verses. People sometimes, when I, you do this kind of job, people say, oh, what's your favorite verse? And it's, with me, it's like stories. Because I'm, I can't remember verses. I just forget them. And I love God's word and I cherish it, but I can't always remember. And I'll think, oh, it's here or it's there. But stories, because I can, it's my mind, I guess, how it works. I can see what's happening. I find more helpful and more powerful. And, and the picture that this story is, I just think is amazing. These two disciples who are leaving, like leaving Jerusalem, leaving the heart of the battle and walking away so quickly. I just think it's incredible how how quickly we can forget what God's just said. Do you know what I mean? How quickly we can forget what God's just said. It must have been a week before, and Mark writes this down for us, when Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to be put to death. You know, they're going to hand me over. You're going to see me on a cross. This is, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to rise again. He's telling them all this. This is, how it, this is what it's going to be. And they are filled with doubt. Isn't it incredible just... How quickly, you know, and they've been around Jesus. They've seen his miracles. They've had this amazing three-year, like, apprenticeship where they've just got to see him firsthand, and they've slipped in three days to have been like, well, who, what was that about? What is this? It's incredible, isn't it, how quickly we can forget God. Have you ever happened that way where you've, you've woke up one morning, you've done, like, a mini quiet time, you've opened your Bible up, and the Bible's just, like, boom, out the page. It's just, it's grabbed you, and you're like, I've never seen this ever in my life. And, and, you, and you say to yourself somewhere in your subconscious, I am never living the same way again. <laughs> you ever said that? You ever just had the Bible just spoke to you? It's like, I'm going to change because of this. Or you've come under a, a sermon, maybe you've been in front of Paul's sermons, and he spoke to you, and you're just like, man, I need to change the way I live. And then 
so quickly, maybe before you've even got home, the sort of the pressures and the realities of the world sort of, sort of come to bear on you and press down on you. And before you know it, this, this thing that was like your whole life, going to change your whole life around, it just becomes one of, many, one of many theories that you have about life. And before you know it, it's just etched at the back of your mind. It's a great picture, I think, the way that these two people clear off to Emmaus, struggling with doubt, struggling to remember what Jesus is, this kind of pattern of the world. I want us to think about that for a second, this pattern of the world that makes it really tricky for us to always hear God's voice. Hebrews says this, we must pay more careful attention to what we've learned so we don't drift away. All the way through the book of Hebrews is these little warnings coming in because people, we drift away. We just fall away. Romans one twenty one. And I guess Paul is talking here, reflecting on, on the journey of Israel and, the, and how quickly they fell away. Romans one twenty one says, They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Ephesians 4.18, Paul again says, These people are darkened in their understanding, alienated from their life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. There's just this picture. There's just this picture in the Bible of just this pattern of, of just a flow of thought that is against God's will and people just getting carried along with it. Luther puts it like this. Man in his nature is turned in upon himself. And I think he's reflecting on the fact that we've, we've, we, are, we, are, we are looking so often inward for the answers that hearing God's voice is just so alien to us. Calvin said, the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. Just this constant flow of selfishness. And the Bible sort of gives us this narrative. And there's a lot of thematic ways you could look at the Bible, but one might, be, one might well be that mankind, apart from God, messes things up. We mess things up. Think right back to the, the start of the story. We're in paradise. It's amazing. And not one generation passes before there's sibling murder. You read through the story of Israel, you realize God, you know, it's like this, but you realize that God's showing you different ways, the way that people just seem to be desperate to get away from him. You open up a history book, flick through a history book, and what does this history book teach us? What does it say? It's, it's mess. And, it's, and the next history book we write in 100 years will we'll kind of record the same sorts of things. It's people messing up outside of God. You get the impression that that Shakespeare couldn't create the tragic tales that we read on the news about the way that our world is messed up. If he had 100 years to sit down and write a, a sonnet about the world, he wouldn't come up with anything as tragic as the way that men turn against men. And so we have prophets in the Bible. God sees this pattern sees mankind etched against him. And I guess I just want to challenge maybe for a second our view of what a prophet is. I, I, have, a, I have a bit of a view of a prophet. I have a Charlton Heston guy who's got it all together sort of image about the prophets. A guy who like, I'm on it with his, with his staff and he's like going with great power and great authority. And the, you know, I'm sure the bit of that is true, but there is there's also a sense that these, these guys, these prophets that we're going to sort of touch on a little bit, you know, they were really reluctant before they went, they often didn't want to do this. And when they did do this, you might think about Jonah, it was through a heavy heart and it was trying to get away from it because this, 
This was going against the flow of humanity. So you've got these prophets, yeah. You've got this divine message from God. You've got this wisdom. You've got this unique relationship. But you've also got, and I think this is crucial for how we understand Christ, is that you've, you've, you're the guy who's got to stand against the flow of the world. You've got the divine message, but you've got to stick your neck in the way of mankind and put your hand up and say, right, I'll say this. And when we read about prophets, we often find that they're not Charlton Heston fantastically good-looking guys. They're in, they're in jail, or they've been beaten up, or they've been ignored, or they're suffering because they are going against the flow of humanity. We need to hear God's word. God's people messed it up and needed to hear God's word. We, in our middle-class, wonderful British imperial country, we desperately need to hear God's word. We need a prophet. So it's back to the walk. And back to these two characters that were trying to figure out who Jesus was, what kind of prophet Jesus was. And any, any kind of Jew worth his salt, they're going to they're gonna know the Torah. They're going to know the Bible kind of like the back of their hands. And, these, these, and I, I'm, I'm surmising a little bit, but these, you know, it's a walk. It's a relaxed walk. They're out in, out in the country on their way to Emmaus, and they're going to be debating this stuff. They're going to be talking about this stuff. And I can't imagine that the, this verse doesn't come up. There's a verse in Deuteronomy 18:15 that says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I commanded him. This is Moses talking. These, these two guys, and Israel generally, are... They are expecting someone coming. We are expecting someone. There is an expectation of a prophet. And, there is an ex- and, th- and this, is, this is kind of what they're wrestling with and trying to work out who Jesus is because they're expecting this. They're expecting somebody Moses-like. And we know the kind of things that Moses did. We, we know the kind, of, the kind of man that Moses was and the kind of way that he went about things and what he did for God. He spoke face-to-face with God. He brought plagues upon the empire of Egypt, crushed an empire with God, talks to God and lives, parts the sea and takes the people through it, walks out in front of the people and they follow him. This is the expectation. These two people are saying, is that, is that the prophet? Is, is, he, is he like this? Did he do these things? And then you look back through, through, Jesus, through Jesus' life and what he did. And, and this is the expectation. People are, people are saying, is, is it him? Is this, is this that prophet? Remember when he fed the, the 5,000 people? After he'd done that, Jesus said to his disciples, right, who do people say that I am? Who, who, what do they say that I am? And they said, and it's interesting, isn't it? He does a miracle, saves the day, feeds 5,000 people. People say, they're saying that you're a prophet. They're expecting a prophet, and they're looking at the story of Moses. There's this expectation. The people are going, you're like you're like what we're expecting. You're like that. The woman of Samaria, when Jesus tells her all about her life, what does she say? Not that you're a fortune teller. She says, I can see that you're a prophet. And she, she goes on to say, I know that the Messiah is coming and he's going to explain everything to us. This is, this is building expectation of who Jesus is. Jesus, Jesus heals the woman of Nain's brings the woman of Nain's son back to life. And what do people say? They, they say, a great prophet has come amongst us. 
And these, these two guys, they've got all afternoon to walk along this road. They're trying to weigh up, right? So we know, we know what we're expecting. We've seen what Jesus has done. But Jesus is not, he's not here. We know we're expecting someone, but it's not the one. Because look around you. The Roman flag is still flying in Jerusalem. Where, where, where are the two people sneaking out the back door for a break to Emmaus to work out what's going on? The Romans are still in control. We are not the authority here. We're, we're, we're the losers. This is dawning on them, perhaps, as they're walking away from Jerusalem. We've not won this. How, how can this be the prophet? Remember all the while. And this is, this is great. And I love, I love thinking about this. I, I feel like Jesus has been quite playful as he walks along with them, because I think there's a lot harsher words that he could have said to them. Do you know what I mean? He could have really torn into them for running off and everything else, but he doesn't do that. He walks along with them. I wonder how, how and this is just me, and I love reading the Bible in this way, I wonder how long he let them sort of surmise what, what the story was. I wonder, I wonder how long he let it go before he cut in. The Bible doesn't tell us that. I'd like to think he got right to Emmaus before he like got there and he thought, right, I'm going to throw it in now. So verse 25, he, he puts it in there and he starts to explain who he is. How foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them everything that was said in the scriptures concerning himself. What does Jesus say? He says, this story is all, it's all about me. And I guess he's dealing with these two disciples who are looking specifically about how this story affects Israel. They're looking back at their homeland. They're looking back at their house that they've left, that they've walked away from. They're looking back at their life, and they're looking back at this specific part. They're looking back at the Roman Empire, dominant in Jerusalem. They're saying, well, he's not done anything about this, so he can't be the prophet. And Jesus explains to him, he's like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the conclusion to this story. I'm not another name on the list of the prophets. I'm not a bit part to this story. This story is all about me. This is, this is all about me. Everything in this book points to me. Everything in this book shadows me. It's all a picture of me. It's all a symbol of me. And he's pulling out all, all the Torah, all the verses, and he's saying, this is all about me. And he's, and he's looking at them and saying, you're thinking about this too specifically. You're looking at a tiny bit of this story and trying to work out who I am. You need to see this in a much bigger way. It's like, trying to, it's like trying to explain a smartphone to your former self from the 70s. That's what it's like. Can you imagine trying to do that? You're not all old enough to go back to the 70s or 80s. I can't remember when smartphones came out. For those of you who are, you can put your former self there just for a second. On, and for those of you who are not, you just have to imagine, imagine some of this stuff. But you're there, you're there with picking up the phone. And, I, and maybe some of you are going to have phones, and this might cause a little bit of offense. I don't know. You, the phones with the, the bendy cords and the dials. And then, and my mum and dad had one of these up until recently, the ring dial things. Do you remember the ring dial things? Do you remember them? How hard was that to do? It was exhausting making a phone call, wasn't it? You'd have this, you'd have this like massive big phone book here, and you'd have your ring dial thing there, and you'd be like, just four. And you'd have to look back at your phone book, three, and then you'd mess it up. And you'd have to go blow it, start again, you'd open your phone book again, you've got the phone at your ear like this, one. It's exhausting doing that. Like, imagine, imagine for a second you wander into your 
your, if you're old enough, your, your former self in the 70s or somebody from the 70s making this phone call and you popped a smartphone under their noses and you began to explain, oh yeah, on my smartphone I can, I can Snapchat my mate in Bermuda. And we can, and in fact, I don't, even need to, I don't even need to touch the thing. I can just go, Mike in Bermuda, Snapchat, something like that. I think that's how it works. I'm rubbish. And you, and and you kind of look back at your phone. Can you imagine what they would make of this? It would just... And they'd be looking at it, and because and, and cause your worldview then was like, well, here's my phone, and I see the line that goes, and I see I've done the, and you see the phone that goes away, and you see how the line, and you think, oh, the, oh, at the other end of this line is the guy that I'm talking to. That's how it works. That's how I get technology. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? I'm going to, you're looking at your guy from the 70s, I'm going to check my, I'm going to check the weather in Singapore. Just going just gonna to check what it looks like. I'm going to. I'm not satisfied with my understanding of astrophysics. I'm just going to spend a few minutes reading up on astrophysics. I'm just, just let me look at the internet. I'm going to connect. I'm going to go online with the World Wide Web. You've got your guy on the, the end of his, on, on his, his, his phone like, what? What the heck's the World Wide Web? I'm just going to check my emails. Their heads would explode, wouldn't they? Because they'd be looking at it, and they'd just struggle to see the vastness of it. Jesus, when he explains... So these disciples, who he is, he sees these two guys who are looking at it through this lens of, is he going to kick the Romans out? Then, and, is, and, and then we'll make him our, our prophet, then we'll perhaps understand him as our prophet. Jesus says to him, this whole story is about me. And my story is about the creation, salvation, and sustainment of the whole world. And their heads... Well, it says, doesn't it, their heads don't explode like our guy from the 70s. Their hearts burn within them because they begin to see something of the vastness of God's plan. Hebrews puts it like this. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. You've got this sort of picture of these people going round house to house trying to find, trying to find Jesus. And, and, the, and the picture is not God. He's, he's just way bigger than that. This is the author of our faith. He's not, he's not a conclusory part of the story he is the author of the story. He is the fulfillment of the story. What does that mean? What does that mean? How do we make sense of this? How, does, how, how is he the story? I'm just going to explore a couple of ways in which he is part of the story. And we've talked a bit before about the way that the prophets suffered. And these people are looking at him like he's, like he's another prophet to add on the list. Jesus isn't another prophet to add on the list. He doesn't, he doesn't suffer in the same way that these prophets suffered. These, people, these prophets suffered so that they could, they could repeat what God had said to them. That's why they suffered. They, they endured the suffering so they could get to say what God had said. When Jesus suffers, he becomes suffering for us. He imbibes it. He is it. And in suffering... In the suffering, in the way that he suffered, it's not just suffering so that he can speak and say his peace. In suffering, in the action of suffering, he speaks God's word to us. 
John 1 says, the word of God, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Jesus, Jesus doesn't just repeat God's message the way that the prophets did. We have this saying that you'll read through in your, in your Bibles. It says, thus saith the Lord. That's the old authorized version. It says that a lot. Thus saith the Lord, this will happen. Thus saith the Lord, that will happen. That's, that's, not, what, that's not what Jesus does. In fact, Jesus says, you've heard it was said this. I'm going to show you what it's really like. And, in, and as we read about Jesus becoming flesh, as the word becomes flesh, we, we hear the very words of God through the actions of Jesus. He speaks to us, not just, he doesn't just repeat what God says, he speaks to us by what he does. I wonder if the, if, if the cross was a sentence spoken by God, if you had to put a tagline underneath that story, what would it say? How does God speak through his son, the prophet, on the cross? What, what sentence would you come up with? I've got one. If you had to put a tagline over Jesus' silence before his pro- prosecutors as, as they whipped him and, and gouged him and beat him up. If you had to put a, put a tagline under that, what would it say? What does the prophet say to us in his silence then? If you had to put a tagline under Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just weeping blood-like tears. I've done a bit of research in this. This is possible. You can emit blood because you're so stressed and you're so anxious. Apparently, um, pilots coming back from World War II did similar things. They were so stressed and so anxious, blood escaping from their bodies. This is, this is where Jesus is at. What tagline do you put under that? What does God say to us? In Easter, we've, Paul introduced this subject by saying that God has spoken to us. Remember Hebrews 1, 1, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I want to tell you this story of the cross a lot of the stories that we read about, they, they explode and they come to a point where they stop exploding. They stop and they start to dissipate again. So 9-11, massively moving though it was in a, couple of, in, in a couple of generations' time, we'll have to explain what that was. This story of the cross, the way that God's spoken, this story has never stopped growing. It reaches out now. You will read of continents that you don't, haven't yet grasped the gospel in years to come that will completely embrace the simple story of the cross because God has spoken. Jesus is not just another prophet in the cast to be understood. He is the whole story. So what? What does this mean for us? What does it matter? Ash, you're saying that God's this great prophet, brilliant. I've got my tea to go back to. Just crack on, get on with it. What, why should it impact us? Why should it change anything that we think? I guess one of the things I would say to you is that this story, great though it is, it's one that we're often ready to walk away from. A bit like these two disciples, looking at Jerusalem, looking at the struggle it was going to be to stay there, started to, started to weigh up the story. Is this really the prophet? And begin to walk away. It's a good picture. We, I, I would guess there'd be moments in our Christian journey, you and me, where we've not been that far from that. Life has been too tough. There has been too much. The flow of the world has been so strong. The logic of the world has been so immense in our minds and we thought, I could walk away from this. We need to remind ourselves in these moments of the brilliance and the greatness and the sufficiency 
of our God so we can stare down the worst day. And I guess, I guess this story gives us this brilliant picture because I like pictures. They don't, the story doesn't end with them walking away off into the distance in Emmaus waving. This story ends with them meeting the risen Christ. This story ends with them understanding who Jesus is and this story changes around. It's got this beautiful change of direction. They hear what Jesus has got to say about who he is. They see him break open the bread and what the story says is they went straight back to Jerusalem. It's beautiful. Like against all the logic in the world, against anything from, this, from the world flow that would make sense, they hurry back to the heart of the battle. Why? Because they grasped that this is the great prophet of God. Anything is going to turn us around. If anything is going to help us to get out of bed tomorrow and this be the most important part of our life, it's knowing that Christ is sufficient. It's knowing that Christ is the story. We need to remember this in our lives. We forget it so quickly. Finally, the story comes to a kind of conclusion. Disciples are all they're back in Jerusalem. They're all, I imagine them anyway, gathered in a little house, maybe, maybe terrified. I would imagine that there would be a lot of fear in the room, kind of working out what's going on. Jesus, Jesus comes into the midst of them, and what does he say? I think it's the first time he gets all the disciples together in this moment. What are the words that he says to his disciples? He says, peace be with you. Peace. Got to be honest, there's been times in my life, even... Even in my role of pastor, when I've said to people, it'll be all right. And I, I don't know whether it'll be all right. There's times when our politicians will say to us, we're going to work towards peace. We're going to work towards peace. And, and what you realize is when they talk about peace, they talk about this kind of temporary gap, temporary pause in hostility. When Jesus comes as our great prophet, when he, he endures the cross, when he defeats death, when we realize that the whole story is about him, when he comes into the room and says, I'm bringing you peace, that means something. When Paul unpacks this, he writes these words, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And the way that he explains peace he uses this idea of guarding. It gives the kind of imagery, if you dig around into the, into the meaning of what he's saying, it gives this kind of imagery to the peace that comes in a Roman city. A city that's got a Roman garrison stood around the top of it. And the peace is this. The peace is, well, there could well be chaos going on outside, but inside these walls there will be peace because of the Romans that stood on the top. Nobody's going to mess with them. That is the kind of peace that we have. We're looking around us at this world, and there is chaos going on. There might well be chaos in your life and drama right now that you just couldn't begin to tell me about. But if we know Jesus, we have this ridiculous, unwarranted peace in here that nothing, nothing can mess with. We have peace because this story is Jesus' story.